Google it. I'm not here to teach you. Stay in your lane, but use your voice to speak up for others. Don't do a microaggression and definitely don't do a macroaggression. Check your privilege or better yet, get rid of it entirely or better yet again, why not give it to me? Don't censor yourself, but also think of nothing but who you are, what you're doing and your impact on those around you. There has been a renewed consciousness of race and racist discrimination in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the waves of Black Lives Matter, which both followed and preceded it. And the social, the cultural and interpersonal impacts of this anti-racist renaissance have extended into nearly every single facet of our public lives, from frantic moral panics around the safety of statues, to the apportioning of budgets to cities' local police departments. And both on social media and establishment media, the question is frequently asked, what can white people do next? And so far, most of the answers have been, in, have been inadequate. There's been a particularly reductive kind of identity politics, which will be familiar to you if, like me, you spend most of your days rotting your brain on the internet. And in this particularly reductive kind of identity politics, the boundaries of flexible and historically contingent social categories like race and like class and like gender are brutally policed. And this has generated a confusing and often nebulous set of social prescriptions for how white people ought to conduct themselves in the world. But what does it even mean to check your privilege? Is it possible to transfer it to someone else? And is it possible to talk about whiteness, white people, white supremacy, without ultimately strengthening the categories of race which produce racism in the first place? So... Thank goodness for my guest, Emma Dabbery, an author, broadcaster, and teaching fellow whose book, What White People Can Do Next, if you see what I did there with the introduction, is out now. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So this book, if you don't mind me saying, it took me by surprise because I picked it up and I was like, okay, it's going to be a listicle of, you know, white people do this, don't do that in ways which are completely contradictory. And then instead, what I found was this blistering and thrilling critique of liberal identity politics. So to kick us off, could you just tell me a bit about how this book came about? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your um, initial description. I was um, very tickled <laughs> by that hellscape you paint because that's such an accurate portrayal of just the contradictory, <laughs> like, advice, the contradictory kind of like discourse that is out there. But, you know, woe betide you if you point out any of those inconsistencies, you know, that would be an act of violence. Um, so, yeah, basically what the book came out of was the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, the response I saw, the outpouring of, um, you know, emotion and the, the willingness and desire to, 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 you know, put conversations about race and the word of the moment, anti-racism, um, kind of 
front front and front and center i never experienced anything like that before so it felt like we were actually being presented with something of a historic opportunity but that the potentiality of that was being squandered by a narrative that was contradictory but also reinforced a lot of the um a discourse that reinforces a lot of the concepts that we really need to be thinking about, not even thinking about, that we need to be actively pursuing, um, getting rid of, that we need to be, you know, kind of actively dissolving, um, re reproducing and reinforcing those. Um, the solution, the solution very much felt a part of the problem. And I was just like, who's leading this? Like, why is this happening? I felt compelled to make some sort of intervention um, saying, you know, there's other ways of thinking about this. There are alternative kind of, there are alternative frameworks. You know, we could learn a lot from the past. If we were to just do the work, we could actually engage with the texts of the thinkers, the activists, the intellectuals whose names we invoke all the time, but whose wider insights we entirely disregard and, 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 and corrupt. I was like, let, let's, take, let's take it back to some of those people, you know? I mean, there's something that you just said, which really just like, bam, chimed with me, which is we reference Audre Lorde or Fred Hampton, but it's in this decontextualized way. So you come across them as either these, you know, little gobbets of quotation, which you, you know, sort of present in a way which is completely abstracted from their wider body of thought, or it's like an Instagram card where Audre Lorde's words about self-care being a form of warfare applies to bubble bath and nothing else. So do you think that it's social media and the way in which social media allows us to have these really thrilling, pacey, exciting conversations without doing the work, without doing the reading? Do you think that that's kind of driven where we are? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a combination of things. So part of it is the nature of social media and particularly a platform like Twitter, you know, that actually like gamifies division and rewards outrage. You know, content often that is highly emotive, that is um, reductive, actually often performs quite well. And ideas, um, like if we actually go into the ideas that generated these um, kind of buzzwords and um, and the terminology that we're using. If we situate it within its broader context and go into the the, the concepts, it's more complicated, obviously, and that complexity doesn't translate so well to this kind of bite-sized um, buzzword um, demands of, um, of, of, a platform, of a platform like Twitter. So if you think about um, what you're trying to do, which is to gain influence by acquiring more likes, more retweets, and more followers, you're going to um, produce the, um, the, 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 the tweets are the type of information that that um that gives you that you know so there's there's actually an incentive to have more reductive kind of hot takes than to deal with the the complexity that a lot of these um these ideas find their find their origins in and often i'll see a quote used 
in this way that is so untethered from its original <laughs> meaning and so distorted and so self-serving to the person who's using it that literally if you read what precedes and follows that quote in the text it's come from it would be it, it would it, the meaning is completely contrary to how it's being used <laughs> you know, um, and with Audre Lorde, the Combahee River Collective, these were women who were engaged and they're, they're, they are in their mission statement. You know, they are announcing from the get go that this is um, self-reflective and se self-reflexive and, you know, self-critical practice that they're constantly kind of involving, uh, evolving and reflecting on. They're not using their marginalized identity they're not weaponizing their marginalized identities as a tool to be beyond any critique they are actually self-reflexive and self-critical you know in a way that is just completely at odds with the the the, the neoliberal hellscape vision of identity politics that reigns supreme online I mean, as a person of colour, I find what you said very problematic there. So <laughs> if you could just check yourself a little bit, that would be great. Um, so I, I think let's get into brass tacks, because one of the things which I was so interested by is how you used this really diverse set of sources from black radical traditions, going from James Baldwin to the Black Panthers, encompassing Afro-pessimism and Fred Moten. And what was really interesting to me about the way in which you used categories, ideas and frameworks was that you did it in a very non-literal, non-reductive and non-rigid way. So can you please talk to me a little bit about how you understand and use racial categories of black, of white, in order to shed light on the world we live in without reifying them as categories which, you know, will deepen the divisions which keep us separate from one another and locked in a network of oppressions. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of one of the, the big challenges is, um, you know, dismantling um, structural racism and responding to institutional racism you know so that it can be so so that so so that these systems can be dismantled without at the same time reifying the racial categories um which um which which are which they are dependent on you know so i think it's we we've started to hear with increasing regularity that race is a social construct but again, it's this almost a mantra that seems untethered from any d demonstration of people really knowing what that, what that means. Because at the same time that you hear race as a social construct, I'm really, as, as, as I'm sure you are, we are witnessing um, a resurgence of forms of ethno-nationalism and not just from white people, but people really doubling down on the biological truth status of race. And for racialized, for racially minoritized people to be um, vehemently arguing in the biological truth status of race is so like deeply, you know, counterproductive and self-destructive. 
um, that it, 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 it boggles the mind. But I think it emerges from a situation where a lot of people are kind of lacking the rudimentary understanding of the ways in which race is a social construction. So I thought a way that could powerfully, you know, demonstrate that was to just take it back to 1661 when the idea, if you, I think the fact that you can locate whiteness to a specific year, a specific place, and a, a specific set of, of codes, of slave codes, is really powerful um, illustration of the fact that the idea of a white race was something that was invented in a particular historic moment with a very particular set of objectives. The first being to, so in, um, in concert with the um, idea of a white race, we have the invention uh, or the, the, the introduction of the idea of a white race. We have the invention of its binary, a black race or the language of the time, a quote unquote Negro race. Okay, so they were, they are inventions that, that come about, they're English innovations that happen in the colonial Caribbean, Barbados is the first place, two reasons. The first is to justify the enslavement of Africans on which these colonial economies are becoming increasingly dependent and eventually Western economies are becoming increasingly dependent on. So to justify that enslavement of this group of people who become associated with an inherent inferiority and for um, a narrative where their natural lords and masters are the white race and whiteness from that um, first moment of inception is imbued with this idea of an inherent superiority, you know? Um, so that's one of the things that it does. But the other thing it does that is so fascinating is it the, the emergence of these laws in Barbados and shortly after in colonial Virginia, again, an English colony in what will become the United States, both of them happen after a series of uprisings between enslaved Africans and in Barbados indentured Irish who identify English landlords as their common enemy and sometimes Scottish landlords, the indentured laborers, the enslaved Africans identify the landlords as their common enemy. They exploit both of their labor, you know, so they come together, a series of uprising where they attack the landlords. That's incredibly threatening to the status quo and to the, to the power system in the colony because there are more oppressed and exploited people than there are this, um, you know, oppressive elite. One of the things that um, the, I, the introduction of the idea of whiteness does is to shut down those um, identifications of a shared struggle between um, indentured Irish and enslaved African who now come, come to begin to understand themselves as white and black, immutably separate and different, you know? And the, the exploited white laborers start to see their fortunes more in alignment with, their, with, the, white, with, the, with the English landlords. Same thing happens in Virginia with indentured English and enslaved African. I mean, I've got to say, when I was reading this book, it, just to be crude, it gave me a history boner. It gave me such a history boner <laughs> to look at the way in which we're using these sources like David Rodiger, The Wages of Whiteness, Theodore W. Allen, The Invention of the White Race, and I just thought it was so precisely historicized. But to expand on this idea of whiteness has to be invented as a 
anti-solidaristic technology of governance. It is intended to break the bonds of solidarity, which are formed through shared interlocking and related oppressions of dispossession, of indentured labor and of enslaved labor. And that's the work that whiteness does. You then, I think, again, through the historicization that you do, you see the Black Panthers emerge. And they've got a analysis and a practice which is based on anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, anti-racism and anti-capitalism all at once. Can you tell me a little bit about that, about the need for all of these interlocking uh, ways of making sense of the world and shaping a political project in order to in some way corrode the anti-solidaristic work of race as a technology of governance. Yeah, absolutely. So doubling down on those categories that were invented to divide us in order to better exploit us seems like a sort of perverse and counterintuitive response to racism, you know, and that's very much kind of what I saw um, happening in this current anti-racist, what I see happening in this current anti-racist moment. Um, The Panthers are you know, an incredibly powerful example because there's no way their radical credentials can be can be questioned. And they're operating in a historical period that is, you know, far more um, far more fraught than now. This is the period where, you know, the G- Jim Crow um, laws of segregation um, are being dismantled in the United States. Given that political climate, the fact that the Panthers, who are black Americans, who are African Americans, are able to um, identify that if they work in coalition with other oppressed and exploited people, including disenfranchised whites, you know, who are the descendants of people who enslaved their ancestors in very, very recent history. If in that context, the Panthers are, well, at least one strata of the Panthers, um, you know, Huey Newton and his, his, his more, um, his, his willingness to work with white radicals, you know, did cause, um, uh, not everybody in the party was necessarily on board with that, but it's definitely like, um, uh, I guess it, it led to a split in the party. Um, but for um, figures like Huey, Huey Newton, who is one of the, the co-founders of the Panthers, the fact that he is able to, and Fred Hampton, of course, as well, with the Rainbow Coalition, the fact that they, which I'll come back to in a moment, the fact that they are able to uh, identify the power of and actively pursue and create a politics of solidarity in those conditions, in those circumstances that they are in, in 1960s America as African-Americans, I don't think we really have a leg to stand on to say that we too can't see points of solidarity with groups outside 
of our own specific identity because you know their their um underpinning logic was not identity politics but it was revolutionary socialism it was anti-imperialist so they could see parallels with other colonized people across the boundaries of race they could see parallels with other people who were exploited by the inequalities perpetuated by capitalism even if those people were white you know and that's what seems to be largely lacking There was this wonderful moment in the book where you talk about the young Appalachians who were, of course, these very poor and dispossessed white people who were working with the Panthers uh, under the Rainbow Coalition. And there was this wonderful moment where you talk about the Confederate flag. And I was just wondering if you could tell that story for our audience today. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was um, really struck by it when I when I first when I first came across that story. So the Rainbow Coalition, which was um, started by Fred Hampton, who was the um, Chicago the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, who was only twenty one when he was assassinated as well, which you know blows my mind. Like the the vision that he had and that he was able to I- enact. Um, so he built uh, yeah, a rainbow coalition between the Black Panthers, um, the Puerto Rican Young Lords, and I think probably most surprisingly, um, a white Southern um, working class group called the Young Lords. Now, the Young Lords had the Confederate flag as their symbol. So the Confederate flag is, as I say in the book, you know, it's a despicable symbol of the slave-owning South, bearing in mind the members of the Black Panthers are the recent descendants of enslaved people. Okay, so it's a pretty disturbing symbol, you know. Fred Hampton's response to the use of that symbol was, you know what, if we can use that to work with them, then let's let, let, let's do it. It's something that's symbolic. If we can use that to further our own um, goals, um, to if we can, you, if, if it, because the concern, you know, is with creating like a mass movement. So he's just like, if we, can, if we need to use that, we're going to do it. And if you, what I do in the book is compare, and, and actually what I think is most powerful, like, yeah, I need to uh, reference that part, is actually quite quickly the young patriots they renounce the flag themselves, not because they're being held accountable or not because they're being about to, they're about to be cancelled or because they are problematic or toxic, but actually, you know, out of respect for the Black Panthers, they renounce the flag themselves. And the type of allyship that is demanded of white people today, I really can't imagine it getting to getting to a point where it could um, achieve that type of um, where it could achieve that type of result, you know, because it's so more it's so much more powerful that it's something that the young patriots renounced themselves rather than you know an attempt to shame them into a, into kind of distancing themselves from it in a in a performative way. I mean, there's so much wrapped up in this. You've got the performativity and performative acts of allyship. You've also got use of shaming as a means of achieving uh, political cultural change. And then you've also got this outsized impact that 
BLM has culturally, but still this stutter, this you know struggle in getting the same traction politically. So I kind of want to ask you about this focus on symbols and cultural totems and micromanaging behavior. Do you think that that indicates perhaps the cultural power of anti-racism, not just from Black Lives Matter, but from the civil rights era onwards? Or does it speak to the weakness and the enduring weakness of its political power? I feel like the level of kind of micromanaging and like demanding of obsequious language, um, the kind of obsession the, the obsession with language the struggles around language are not new you know you know to to the extent that i was surprised by reading a 1971 text um which was a conversation which so 50 years ago a conversation between between james baldwin and a leading white um intellectual public intellectual of the time margaret mead an anthropologist um, who's quite aggravating in their um, in their in their transcripts that I got my that I got my hands on, but it was really interesting to hear James James Baldwin speak about the move from the move of terminology um, around Hispanic people from Mexican to Chicano, and the fact that he didn't really know where the ter- terminology came from and it was new to him and he felt quite tongue tied and he was really aware of like how white hippies would co-opt the language from you know from from black american culture but use it use it in ways that were wrong and it was just really embarrassing and he didn't want to be caught in that bag himself as he says and i was like wow this notion of not knowing the terminology feeling tongue-tied he was saying he feels like he's going to say the wrong thing so he just doesn't want to say anything to hear james baldwin saying that in like 1971 was like wow this is not the first time that we've been here but i feel which I think is also really important in that we have this tendency, I think particularly, you know, this generation has this tendency to imagine that no one's ever been radical before. None of these conversations have ever happened before. (laughs) No one's ever really done anything before. This is actually like anti-racist ground zero, you know? Um, So I think it's, it's quite humbling to like just... No, that's very, very far from the case. Um, and actually, I go back to the, 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 the abolitionists, the slavery abolitionists, and how there's parallels, you know, between a lot of what they were doing in the 18th and 19th century and the current anti-racist movement. Some of the limitations as well, actually, and some of, some of the attitudes, um, some of the um, patronizing attitudes towards black people. But um, the, this, this um, kind of, uh, these, what's the word, um, tensions, around language um, are are not new. This kind of policing of language is not new, but I feel it is turbocharged by social media. Um, and so you were asking like kind of the, about the trajectory from civil rights to the current moment. And does that um, kind of highlight um, the cultural strength of these movements or a form of weakness. I, I think I would want to, even though there's parallels, I'd want to distinguish between the two. I think what we're living in, I think what we're living through now has a lot of inherent flaws and and, and weaknesses because so little of it seems to be grounded in actual organizing and most of it seems to be 
centered on digital and online um, discourse and therefore the idea of conversation is elevated to this obscene status and it's all about you know speech and saying something rather than doing anything whereas in the past we have um in in, in the in the movements of the past um they often weren't they weren't successful but the fact that they weren't successful wasn't necessarily because their methods were not effective but because their methods were so effective that they posted they posed such a threat to power that power made sure those movements were undermined and destroyed you know whereas in this current in this current moment i don't really think I don't really think you'd need to do that much to undermine what's happening because it's doing it, it it's doing it itself, you know? Um, like so so many of the takes I see just, it's not that I see, so many of the takes that are online and the, the interpretations of things just seem like textbook psyops, you know? I'm like, you wouldn't even need to put plants in because... <laughs> Everyone's just behaving like they, like they are a plant, you know? It's just, so I think the movements of the past were, were, were actively <laughs> undermined and there's not really any need to do that now because so much of it is just performative, is not about, um, is, is not about kind of organizing, is not actually about um, organizing and the, the power of, you know, like trade unions and labor organizing seems to have been just kind of, you know, entirely, not entirely, but mostly disregarded. It's almost absent from the contemporary um, anti-racist narrative. Um, there's also no class analysis. There's no real engagement with capitalism. It's all just about kind of interpersonal privileges and kind of interpersonal grievance, you know, and conversation. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, which is this move from perceiving oneself as, amongst other things, a worker, to perceiving yourself as primarily a cultural consumer and conversationalist of a kind. But I wanted to ask you this question, and it's about the difference between allyship and coalition building for you, because that seems to be the heart of this book and your proposal. So could you just talk me through, what is the difference between allyship and coalition building? And what would coalition building look like today in 2021? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I might just read <laughs> the definition of it from the book, because I'm like, you know, I've just- Go for it. <laughs> I've summarized it there. Um, and now I won't be able to find the page. Um, okay, no, just gonna have to, just gonna have to freestyle. <laughs> so yeah, I had I had been asked, you know, for for um, for my thoughts on allyship a number of times um, regularly over the past few years, and the whole you know discourse around allyship, as I talk about, as I as I say in the book, just left me feeling really. Just, just icky is the word I use. You know, it made me feel really uncomfortable. And on on the most basic level, to me, it reinforces a power dynamic that I feel deeply uncomfortable with, and plays into this um, 
notion that, um, okay, so it, re it reinforces this whole um, relationship whereby, if we're talking about white allies in the anti-racist movement, where the white person, every white person is just an uncomplicatedly privileged person who's living this rarefied and beautiful white life and black people are you know abject and subject to you know brutal and ongoing discrimination and um white people can feel bad about like you know feel feel pity um feel bad about that and can out of a sense of kind of charity or benevolence help the victimized black or non-white person and to me it really plays into like it's a it's a i think it's the most contemporary articulation of white saviorism you know and so it's just an it's a, it's an uncomfortable power dynamic that's the first thing but secondly it um okay it also hinges um it hinges support on um, appealing to a person's sense of, of charity. You know, it's almost a favor and favors can be withheld. It's very fragile territory. Thirdly, um, it, it fails to connect the dots in terms of one, one of the underpinning arguments I make in the book is that whiteness as a system with its origins, you know, with its, so whiteness with its origins in um, the capitalist um, kind of framework that we, that, that we currently exist under um, and the relationship between capitalism and the exploitation of, you know, human life, um, beyond race and also the exploitation of the earth and natural resources, um, allyship fails to engage with any of that and presents whiteness. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't like challenge whiteness and it fails to identify the ways in which white people are also, of course, in a different way and to less, with less extremity, but are also, you know, um, negatively impacted by whiteness. So what it does is it, it doesn't join the dots where we could create systems, where we could create a framework of solidarity. It dispenses with that. It offers, offers charity at the expense of solidarity and reinforces this idea of, you know, immutable difference between black and white. It's just not only is it an, an inadequate framework, it is a, um, it's a deeply problematic one. So I propose, propose coalition where we identify, where different groups of people identify the fact that to varying degrees and in different ways, we are, most of us, um, have our life opportunities diminished by whiteness, whiteness as a modus operandi, whiteness as a, as, a, as a system and a way of being, not just like being racialized as white. Um, that, you know, we have our opportunities um, diminished by that system and we can identify the way our different experiences of exploitation and oppression actually have their say, have the same 
source. So if we go back to, you know, colonial Barbados and we look at the different experience of the indentured Irish and the different experience of the enslaved African, different experiences, what the enslaved African is experiencing is far more extreme and it's different, you know, but the source of the exploitation in the same way as it is today is from the same group of people. If we can identify that now, we can build Um, a pot, we can build coalitions, we, you know, you can build a mass movement where lots of different groups of people see a common interest and see a shared point of origin from the, um, uh, a shared point of origin in where their, their different experiences of exploitation come from. And allyship completely fails to do that. I mean, Emma, it is such a wonderful book. And so sensitively historicized, it is optimistic and yet pragmatic. And I really encourage anybody who has been struggling with this question of what can white people do next, but also what are the limitations of contemporary turbocharged neoliberal identity politics? Honestly, this is the book for you. And I very rarely pick up books and shake them at the camera because I find it a bit tacky, but this is the one. <laughs> this is the one you all need to read it. Um, Emma Dabry, thank you so much for joining me. You're most welcome. Thank you, Ash. <laughs> This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.